0: This is the Bartender Journey Podcast.
1: It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 201. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is a podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, this week on the show, we'll be talking to Brian Heffling. I spoke to Brian during San San Antonio Cocktail Conference about his great book, Distilled Knowledge, The Science Behind Drinking's Greatest Myths legends and unanswered questions. But before we get to that, I'd just like to tell you a little bit about uh, where I'll be next week and what what you can expect to hear on future episodes of Bartender Journey. So this past Monday, just a couple of days ago as I record this, I did not know that in less than a week I'd be traveling to Mexico as a guest of Patron Tequila. I'll be flying down there on Monday, February 20th, and we'll be staying at the Patron Hacienda where they actually make the tequila. And I've spoken to other people that have been on this trip And every one of them has told me it's an amazing experience. And I just can't wait. Can't wait. So, uh, yeah, hopefully I'll get a podcast out to you next week. Uh, I'll be traveling. But if I have time in between being behind the bar and leaving uh, for the airport at 4 o'clock in the morning on Monday... Yeah, you know what? That's really not going to (laughs) happen. I have a really busy weekend uh, at the bar. We have uh, several really huge events going on. So you know what? Uh, I'm calling it right now. No podcast next week. Look for it uh, the week after. And uh, I'll have some adventures from from Mexico and from from the Patron Hacienda. Well, we have so many other things coming up for you on the show. We'll be talking with Master Distiller of Jack Daniels, Jeff Arnett. We'll be talking to Sam Ross of Milk and Honey fame and a really interesting and smart gentleman named George Bressler. Uh, we'll talk to brand ambassadors from Monkey Shoulder, Drambuie, Black Bottle Scotch. We'll be talking with author and bartender Lou Bustamante. And so I hope you're subscribed to the show so that you get the new episodes as soon as they are posted and you'll be able to bro- browse the back catalog as Well, once you're subscribed, if you have any questions about how to subscribe, you can just go over to bartenderjourney.net slash subscribe. And speaking of the back catalog, I previously had restricted the iTunes feed to the most recent 100 episodes, but I just opened it up so you can go all the way back to the beginning of the uh, on iTunes now. And if you'd like, if you'd like to hear the beginning of the bartender journey all the way from the beginning, you can go all the way back now if you like on iTunes There's probably some weird and embarrassing stuff back there, but the heck with it. All right, so of course our book of the week is Brian Heffling's distilled knowledge, and we'll be talking with Brian in just a minute. But first, let's do a cocktail of the week. And it's the Paloma, in honor of my upcoming trip to the Patron Hacienda. I made a Paloma today, and why not? It's a delicious drink. I I know we've done this before uh, as cocktail of the week, but that's okay. A Paloma, from what I've read, and I'll have to, to try to confirm this next week, is more popular than a margarita in Mexico. Uh, it's a highball drink with silver tequila and grapefruit soda I have some delicious grapefruit soda uh, syrup here from the Fruitation's company Um, so I used about 2 ounces of uh, Patron silver, 3 quarters ounce of the Fruitation's grapefruit syrup a pinch of sea salt and topped it with seltzer gave that a good stir so that everything gets combined well and then I squoze in a nice big chunk of lime, Uh, I used about, about a quarter of a big lime and squeezed it into drink and dropped it in there. All right, during San Antonio Cocktail Conference, I spoke with Brian Heffling, and I have to give a big shout-out to Ben Crick for letting me use his bar, Juniper Tar, to record interviews while I was down there. All right, we're here with Brian Heffling, and we're at the great Juniper Tar. Benjamin, thank you for letting us use your space to uh, record today. Thank you, Benjamin. And uh, Brian's the author of Distilled Knowledge, the science behind drinking's greatest myths, legends, and unanswered questions. Well, uh... What led you to write this particular book?
0: I spent so much time hearing uh, claims about science and drinking that would never be sourced. Usually it was stuff that was supposed to get you drunk faster. Uh, Grapefruit juice, carbonation, hot drinks. Nobody had any information to back it up. It's all repeated all over the internet. Nobody ever bothers to source it. By about the third time that I found myself trying to find hard scientific information, reading up Google Scholar papers and, and that sort of thing, I, it, it kind of hit me, why has nobody put all this stuff in one place? The information's out there. Um, for the most part, it's just buried in hard-to-find and very dry scientific papers, um, and somehow nobody had made the coffee table book version of that yet. Right. No, people put things that aren't true on the internet.
1: <laughs> Never heard of that.
0: <laughs> well, the, the weirdest thing in this case is people are mostly putting stuff that was true on the internet. They just hadn't bothered to trace out the fact that it was true. Fact check it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so you have a bartending school, yeah. Uh, not bartending schools f- per se. It's, uh, it's not targeted at training people to serve behind a bar. It's more, um, targeted at people who are interested in learning to make cocktails at home. Okay. So it, it's sort of, it's an, it's a bartending service. It's an events planning service, but the signature is cocktail lessons. So, mm-hmm. you know, people are interested in doing whiskey cocktails for their birthday or themed cocktails for a wedding engagement party or something like that. That's the kind of stuff that we do.
1: Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity with that, with like little kato classes for a bachelorette party or, you know, things like that, right?
0: It's uh, done very well with bachelorette parties. I yeah. Have to say.
1: <laughs> you know, I bid on a job like that, but um, it wasn't for a bachelorette party, but a different event. And, uh, but for, for consumers, you know, not for bartenders. They wanted to learn how to make cocktails. And uh, I guess I bid too high because I didn't hear back from them. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to go out and do it for 20 bucks an hour, you know? Oh, of course not. <laughs> of
0: course not. It's both the, the service and the expertise you're providing. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Um, so, wow, this book, you get into a lot of uh, real geeky science, you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, for for anybody that d- doesn't know, you know, um, could you just sum up how distilled spirits are made in like, you know, two minutes or less? <laughs> uh,
0: sure. So, shortest possible version. Uh, distillation doesn't add anything uh, in terms of ethanol. Everything, all the ethanol you're going to get in your drink is created by fermentation in the first place. Um, so, yeast usually, occasionally, some strain of bacteria is put into a... Solution that contains some kind of sugar, eats that sugar, turns it into ethanol. Uh, That whole collection, all that liquid. um, I talk with my hands. That's not really going to come through on the podcast, is it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) But basically, you're making
1: a uh, a beer first. Yeah,
0: you're you're essentially a beer or a wine or. um, uh, Wayne Curtis, I think, has a great line about how you know uh, if uh, brandy is the distilled essence of wine and uh, whiskey is the distilled essence of beer, then rum is the distilled essence of industrial waste because, of course, molasses is a byproduct of sugar production. Um, but yeah, you you take your your beer, your wine, your what have you um, that you're making first, put it into a uh, a big metal container, heat it up. Um, that heat allows you to uh, vaporize the contents of that mixture so that you can boil off the Really unpleasant poisonous stuff at first, uh, then boil off the ethanol, condense that uh, back into liquid form because that 's what you want, and leave behind more of the water and the heavier stuff that you don 't want
1: water evaporates of course at a different te- uh, temperature than ethanol and all the other different chemicals right, that's right. so that's how that 's how we uh split it up mm-hmm. so therefore exactly. the um So then, um, and usually it'll be distilled twice, yeah, because the Uh, the first time. Because
0: getting it from beer strength to liquor strength takes, you got to do this a couple of times. As you're boiling it off, you're not, it's not a perfect division. You know, every cubic inch of vapor that you're getting is going to contain some blend of chemicals. It's just going to be uh, heavier on the acetone at a certain spot and then heavier on the ethanol, heavier on the water and so forth. Um, so you will generally distill the mixture more than once, and you will also generally blend what you've separated out back together in some concentrations, because there are flavors that you might want at various points throughout the distillation run.
1: Right. And uh, so yeast plays a big role in this. And, uh, Huge role. I didn't know until recently how what a big effect it has on the final outcome the different yeast strains, and uh, <clears throat> some people will use naturally occurring yeast, and some will have proprietary, and they have, some will keep it in a safe offside, uh, off-site, in case, <laughs> you know, so they can reproduce it if there were a fire. So that that was really interesting.
0: Oh, absolutely! I mean, there there are whole banks of just various yeast cultures that have been carefully collected over the years that. Uh, you know some for historic styles that people have been able to to identify, um, which is useful if you want to start making something in that style, and nobody 's really doing it right now um, but yeah the the flavors that are provided by yeast are incredibly uh, numerous. If you ever have like a banana taste that comes up in a rum or a beer it 's being made by the yeast you know it 's not coming from the sugar and it 's not coming from the barrel it 's coming from the, the microbes Wow.
1: And you actually have a flavor wheel in the book for different the different tastes that you get from different types of yeast. I've never seen that before. It's really uh, interesting. As far
0: as I'm aware, that is the first one ever made. Um, yeah. And it's probably my favorite image in the whole book. Yeah. Uh, that, that was A lot had to go into making that, and of course there's a lot that got left out because yeah. The, Thousands of different chemicals that they use produce, but mm. I, I think what we came up with is, is fairly representative of the different strains that are most common in fermentation.
1: Well, we should talk about the images in the book because it plays a big part in the book. They're really, really cool. Sure. So, uh, what's the gentleman's name who
0: did them? Leandro Castellau. Uh, man is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's been nominated for a Latin Grammy. Like he was, uh, he was an absolute delight to work with. Hmm. Um, yeah. And
1: yeah, they really, uh, they really bring a lot to the book. The uh, illustrations, and they're really. Really cool. So I guess what you'd call it the infographic style, right?
0: Yeah. So that's the idea um, yeah. that the the illustrations are an essential part of the book. Uh, I think there's a lot of concepts in here that are you know it's it's one thing to read 300 words that I've written and try to get your head around. It. It's something else entirely to see. Okay, here's uh, you know we've got for instance the the chain of production for brewing beer. You know, and it's okay. So having now read this whole chapter on fermentation, I'm still not entirely clear on how beer is made. Oh, great. Here's a picture. Yeah, uh, just enough text. You know, th- this is everything that I need to know to understand how it gets from grain into my bottle.
1: Right, right. Yeah. Speaking of beer, and actually, I don't think you brought this up in the book, but um, I'm always curious about the effect of temperature on, let's like, say, bottled beer or keg beer. You know, mm-hmm. because you know, it comes usually if you buy cases of beer at a bar, it comes. It's not cold. Maybe you put it in the cooler. Maybe you don't. You know what happens if you take it out of the cooler or put it back in. You know, so I'm curious about that.
0: Interesting question. Depends on the the temperatures that it's been exposed to. How much effect there would be. Um, if you're going between cold and room temperature in a you know an airtight container, then you might be um, undissolving and redissolving some of the carbon dioxide that's you know in the beer. But that would probably be the extent of it. If it was exposed to really high temperatures, then you might be in danger of you know, initiating some kind of chemical transformation where you're breaking down some flavors in there that you don't want necessarily to be broken down or forming new ones that you also don't necessarily want. Um, This is easier to tell with sort of distilled spirits um, because they tend to be exposed to light or heat for longer periods of time. Uh, Once a bottle is opened, you know depending on the spirit, you might not be finishing it right away. There is you know, traceable, documentable change that happens over the course of the lifespan of a given bottle of spirits, particularly if it's stored in a hot environment or a very bright environment.
1: Yeah, yeah, you brought that up in the book, and it's something that, you know, it's sort of like... In the back of everybody's mind, it's got to be changing at some, you know, once you open that bottle of whiskey, it's got to change over time after you open it. Or even, and then you say even in the bottle before it's open, it'll change a little bit.
0: Uh, it certainly can. Um, yeah. it, it, there, obviously, it's more so once it is open because you have greater chance for evaporation, greater chance for adding oxygen and sort of oxidizing some of the chemicals that you might want into others that you don't want. Uh, changing the, ta- the that lovely taste of ethanol into that slightly less lovely taste of acetic acid less lovely, at least in this context. I mean, vinegar is perfectly fine, but not necessarily when it's in your scotch, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So, yeah, I wanted to ask you that, actually. What exactly is oxidation? I I don't know the definition of it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Neither do chemists, Um, unfortunately. There's a few different definitions that have been offered over the years, and uh, it depends on who you ask, but the short version is there there are sort of two categories of related and uh, contrary chemical reactions, oxidation and reduction. Basically, if you oxidize something into something else, then you would need to reduce that something else back into the first thing. That's so They run in opposite directions. Um, oxidation has been variously defined as, oh, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but let's see, uh, adding an oxygen atom to it, which is where the name came from in the first place, um, and certainly exposure to oxygen tends to result in oxidation-type reactions, but it has also been defined as removing a hydrogen atom or adding electrons to it, and I might have gotten that backwards. Um, oh, wow. Well. But in any case, it's... it's uh, so
1: it's done on it, the molecular, it, mele- oh, molecular oh, yeah, level. Oh, I mean, it, it <laughs> that is That word's hard to say,
0: molecular Molecular. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's the process by which uh, a lot of organic chemical reactions take place. Uh, breaking down ethanol in your body is an oxidation reaction. Ethanol gets oxidized into acetaldehyde, which is a a chemical that also shows up in distilled drinks. Sometimes it has sort of a light grassy flavor. In high concentrations, it's very unpleasant. It's a chemical irritant, probably a carcinogen. But mm. fortunately, your body breaks it down very rapidly into uh, acetic acid, which is vinegar, okay. um, which is a, a little bit less bad for you and a little bit easier for your body to handle. But that, too, is an oxidation reaction. So ethanol gets oxidized twice um, before it gets fed into the acetic acid cycle, which your body can deal with pretty easily.
1: Okay, wow complicated answer
0: (laughs) (laughs) so the uh but that kind of brings us to um angel
1: share so when a spirit is aged in a wooden barrel Mm -hmm. angel share is what's evaporated between the time you put it in and take it out so i I always assumed that since alcohol evaporates at a lower temperature that would be what would evaporate first and so for and for that reason when you take it out of the barrel it's going to be a lower proof than when it's put in um, but you mentioned the, the environment uh, has some effect on that, actually. It,
0: it does vary climate to climate. Um, it depends not, not just on the temperature, but also on the humidity, how much water there is in the air. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, an aging spirit will lose relatively more ethanol. Sometimes it will lose relatively more water. Mm. Um, but in general, any spirit that's aging in a barrel, anything that's that's kept in a barrel that's liquid, will lose some of its volume to evaporation over time. If you've ever seen um, like a balsamic vinegar aging process, they uh it's 17 years or something like that and they use a bunch of different barrels over the course of it and the barrels get smaller and smaller and smaller because they're losing vinegar to evaporation and they're trying to keep the barrels relatively full as Mm. the aging process goes on
1: oh wow i didn't know that i don't think the uh, balsamic vinegar that i buy for a dollar 99 is aged that long Uh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) no no probably not
1: But uh, speaking of barrels, you know it's interesting how they were originally just used to store and ship the stuff. You know, mm-hmm. nobody gave much thought to uh, the effect on the uh, on the liquor itself. But you know, and then on the other on the other hand, since that's been discovered, nobody's come up with a better way to make whiskey.
0: <laughs> uh, no, but not for lack of trying. Yeah. Um, there are people who make uh, who try to sort of rapidly age whiskey using uh, like wooden lattices that they make out of barrel quality wood. Um, so if you imagine, you, they, they sell some some kits like this that you can make at home, so if you have a, a big mason jar and a sort of honeycomb of wood that you can stick into it, um, so you're maximizing the surface area, the exposure of the alcohol to the wood. Um, there are certain things that we know that barrel aging offers that that does not necessarily offer. Um, there's something nice about uh, multiple seasons of expansion and contraction into the wood changing in temperature and humidity and, and the way that that affects the interaction of the alcohol with the wood flavors. Um, there are probably other things that the barrels are offering that we don't know about specifically, um, scientifically, uh, that are, are also affecting the process in, in uh, an aged spirit that's kept in the barrel for a long time versus something that you're making on your counter with a wood infusion. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can make some interesting things with the, the sort of that wood infusion technique, uh, just you know, taking a, a slightly less high-quality liquor that you might get uh, you know, a white rum and a plastic bottle at your local corner store and leaving that on the wood for a couple of months and getting something that tastes like, you know, not a world-class rum by any stretch, but certainly better than what went in there. Um, Different for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> what I found interesting uh, that I didn't know before I
1: read your book was that the original reason for charring the barrels was to sterilize them. Yes. Yeah. So I always thought, I never really gave much thought to why they were just charred other than to add flavor. Um,
0: so I mean a lot of different treatments that have been done to barrel wood over the years have been adjusted for the purposes of adding flavor, but you figure sort of seasoning the wood is we want to make sure it's not going to rot once we put liquid in it. Um, and then charring was the, the really very straightforward and very American, I think solution to the problem of Mm -hmm. reusing barrels. Yeah. (laughs) Just put some fire in there. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be fine. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, would, they would reuse the, the same shipping barrels to get the whiskey from one place to another, and uh, people started to discover that, oh, that, that, that sort of charred... That, that charring effect actually does do something to it. The, you're creating a sort of natural charcoal filter on the inside of the barrel and releasing a lot of the, the vanillin and the lactones that would be um, otherwise sort of trapped in the, the long molecule chains in the wood.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's switch back to beer. Um... You mentioned well, and carbonation. You go into pretty heavily about um, mm-hmm. how it grabs on to certain. Um, it won't grab onto a smooth surface, but it'll grab onto. Uh, the the thing I'm getting at is pouring beer out of a keg. Oftentimes, bartenders have a hard time keeping that head under control. Either there's right. too much or not enough. So, what's what's the story with that? <laughs>
0: Carb- so any carbonated liquid uh, has carbon dioxide gas that's dissolved in it, which is not the bu- the bubbles that you see, um, in the same way that if you have sugar dissolved in a liquid, you don't see the sugar. Um, the bubbles are what happen when the carbon dioxide gets undissolved, right? Okay. precipitates out, forms bubbles, rests the surface. Um, so if you're losing control of the head, essentially it means either the, the bubbles are coming out too fast, too many of them, that... Could potentially be a problem with the keg or a problem with the the speed at which you 're doing it or the way that it 's uh, the extent to which it's getting exposed to the air. Um, let me back up because that was not necessarily clear uh, so the the way that that undissolving process works uh, is it 's going to happen most at where the liquid meets another surface, another state of matter mm-hmm. um, so it 'll it 'll happen uh, wherever it 's exposed to the air. Very very easily, it'll happen where there are imperfections in, imperfections in the glass. Uh, if right. you ever if you look at the glass, you see the bubbles are rising from specific spots because there's a little nick or a divot in the glass there. That's or they're dirty, too small to see, or they're dirty. I'm, I'm giving the benefit <laughs> not, of the not, doubt to <laughs> not your, clean
1: properly. Let's say you know not that they're not sanitized, but you know sometimes there's residue or something you know a little stuff stuck on your glass even right. after it goes through the dishwasher.
0: That that would absolutely do it as well. Um, the other interesting thing is that the the bubbles themselves count as a different. Sort of uh, state of matter for for these purposes, so uh, the bubbles will get much larger as they rise, and it 's not just because they're expanding under reduced pressure it 's because the the gas is actually precipitating out and joining the those bubbles and making them larger right so yeah if you if you want to avoid that, a smooth pour is the most important thing, try to keep the liquid flowing in uh, a technical term is laminar or turbulent flow, which I'm, I'm sure one person listening to this will appreciate. Um, but uh, we, we all know, I think, what turbulent means, right? We, mm-hmm. we want as smooth a flow as possible, not a sort of choppy, bumpy flow that maximizes the exposure to the air, because that um, that will increase the bubble formation. Right. Uh, another way to think about this is if you pour a very, uh, very, very smooth. If you pour a beer very smoothly and have basically no head on it then take a spoon or a straw or something and stir it up really vigorously. You'll see the head form. Mm. Um, try to imagine the things that are happening when you're stirring the beer that way, that sort of vigorous jostling, all that air getting in, um, and try to avoid that as much as possible when you're pouring right. the beer.
1: Right, right. Well, speaking of uh, head, uh, let's talk about egg egg cocktails. Yes. Because uh, well, the egg white in a cocktail will add... Uh, mouthfeel, which we'll talk about later, also, but uh, also some head to your cocktail. Mm-hmm. So, um, what I've been trying to get to the bottom of this for the longest time, the best way to do this. You, you, uh, you seem to be a proponent of the dry shake. Yep. And uh, so you say the the, and I've heard this from somebody else that the lower temperature. Uh, so, you're shaking without ice with the egg white first, and yeah. the lower temperature leads to better emulsification and um, more head, right? Or rather, so. Uh, or shaking the higher temperature. The higher temperature, sorry, yeah. the, the colder temperature would, would prevent it.
0: Right. Uh, so, basically, the, the process of um, shaking an egg white to change the texture and mouthfeel of the drink is uh, the egg white's got a lot of you know, long protein chains in it um, that naturally are kind of folded up on themselves. Um, imagine like a ball of yarn or something like that and the shaking process, what you're trying to do is stretch those out, open them up so that you can uh, build a sort of so that you can build that foam essentially so that they can serve in the role of uh, trapping that air um, trapping that gas with a not quite solid but much sturdier film around this this is basically what foams are in general is you have Mm -hmm. some kind of long fatty chain or protein chain some kind of organic molecules that are Long enough and and sturdy enough and bond with each other well enough that you can actually trap gas inside of them. It's how beer foam works. It's how egg cocktail foam works. It's how soap, soapy foam in a you know in a sink or bubble bath works. To to make the egg proteins maximally effective for that, you want them to be as much unfolded as possible. Okay. Um, and they don't unfold as easily when they're very cold. So this uh, is the the yeah. reason the reasoning behind the dry shake is you want to open them up as much as possible. Get that sort of vigorous shaking action going before you chill the cocktail. Right. Okay. The
1: problem I find with the dry shake is it doesn't make a good seal in your shaker;
0: <laughs> it tends to leak a lot of times.
1: <laughs> I guess the the cold helps constrict the tin, and it.
0: Uh, yes, that's also true. Um, I suppose that that'll depend to some extent on the shaker that you're using. Yeah, um, I use a
1: I use a Boston shaker. I like I like the glass um, shaker with the with the tin on top. Right. Just because. Just because when I'm building the drink, I like to have that visual cue of what I'm doing, you know. Even if I'm using a jigger, I like to have that. So, no, sure. I don't know, people, people call it old school or
0: whatever, but I like the Boston shaker. Yeah, I, I tend to use a Boston shaker as well. I, I've got a couple of different shakers that I have at home, and uh, there are some of them that I, I just don't dry shake with because yeah. it, it will get all over me. Yeah. Um, or if I'm going to dry shake with them, I recognize the fact that it's going to get all over me, and I just <laughs> make my peace with that. Um. <laughs> but with, yeah. a, with tin on tin, I guess it's
1: less of an issue.
0: I, I think it, it varies more by the individual shaker than by the material, yeah. um, or you know who, who's making it um, and how they've designed it. Uh, there are, you can get some tin-on-tin seals that are really, 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 really tight, yeah. um, sometimes problematically so if, you're, if uh, you've got ice in there and it's gotten very constricted. But uh, yeah, I think it, it varies more by maker than by material.
1: Well speaking of science the and shakers uh, it it took me it wasn't until maybe 4 or 5 years ago that somebody explained to me the theory of how to open that shaker properly you know <laughs> I I was bartender for years and nobody told me the proper way to open a shaker really yeah so uh you know people People who don't know try to teach you stuff all the time
0: when you behind the bar. <laughs> that's where the book came from, yeah. honestly.
1: <laughs> but I, I love when somebody finally explained it to me. It made total sense. What you're trying to do is break the vacuum seal with that mm-hmm. with that wrap of your hand. You know, don't hit it against the bar. You know, <laughs> just that little wrap. You know, it's like opening a, a jar that won't open, and you use a spoon just to release the vacuum. You exactly. Know? Yeah. That's that's the theory behind it. So, uh, yeah, I. Went years without knowing that. <laughs> uh, so, um, and in a cocktails, we have the um, mouthfeel is uh, another um, issue with that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you have a mouthfeel tasting wheel in your book. Another first, as far as I could tell. Uh, yeah, I- I'm pretty sure that
0: one. That one is also entirely new. Um, I, the we definitely went into this thinking that the the mouth the the, uh, the mouthfeel the flavor wheel concept was going to be very present in the book. And that we were going to kind of try to turn it on its head a little bit. Um, uh-huh. Do like I think the the yeast flavor wheel is probably the the most conventional flavor wheel that the book has, um, right. and it, it's it's still you know flavors of microbes rather than flavors of wine, say. Although it, it's all one in the end because uh, the flavors of wine are coming from the yeast in the first place. But that was tangential. The mouthfeel, flavor wheel, and mouthfeel as a as a concept in general um, is that where, where should we go with this? Like the yeah, no,
1: I just thought it was fascinating. I just wanted to bring it up because I thought it was so cool. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> I,
0: I certainly had fun making it. Um, it's uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it is a, a a concept that has a lot of different elements to it. A lot of different categories of things that come under mouthfeel. You know, it's everything from is this burning me to, is this carbonated to, is this sort of creamy or are there detectable dissolved solids in it? Mm. Um, and you know, we, we, mean a lot of different things when we talk about Matthew. Uh, and so putting all of those in one place and trying to, to, to get some kind of category headings going was, um, you know, that, that's something that I, I think the, the world could use, um, that I certainly would have used if I had seen it before. Um, and uh, I, I hope this is not the last mouthfeel wheel that gets made. Uh, I hope somebody else comes along and says, "I'm not sure about that and makes their own version it might yeah, be a little well, bit better."
1: You know, that flavor wheels certainly you know vary from one to another. so oh absolutely. Uh, yeah.
0: and, and and they should. I mean, yeah, there's, it, there's an extent to which it's subjective. Yeah. Um, certainly, the categorization is object- is you know, subjective. If you're doing a wine flavor wheel, Deciding whether something falls under fruit, berry, or red fruit is, like, that's entirely a judgment call. Right, sure. Um, I, I hope people take this idea
1: and run with it. Yeah, it's cool. Well, let's do uh, myth or fact. You have, you have a, a lot of myth. You're, you're sort of the myth buster when it comes to uh, spirits, right? All right. Or, or drinking, anyway. So uh, Hit me with them. All right, so myth or fact. Drinking on an empty stomach, the alcohol will take effect much faster.
0: Uh, yes, absolutely true. Um, all, again, all else being equal, uh, is sort of the watchword for all these things. But, uh, yeah, if you are drinking the same amount and the same length of time on an empty stomach versus on a full stomach, you will get drunker and faster on the empty stomach than on the full stomach.
1: And you give a great explanation why in the book, we, we don't have to get into that, but it's, uh, it, you know, once you read the reason for it, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and this one's pretty easy, but, but, uh, speed of drinking affects absorption. Oh uh, yeah. For
0: sure. <laughs> I think we all know that. 100%. That, that is probably the, the most unambiguous thing that all I right. can say. Drink faster, get drunk faster. Yeah. Uh, cause your body can only, uh, handle, uh, process
1: so much in a certain period of time.
0: That's right. You know, yeah. Right? The, the enzymes that your liver produces basically there's, there's a maximum amount that, you, that it's going to have in your body any given time. Um, and so if uh, you have more ethanol in your blood than then those enzymes can handle at once, that ethanol just stays in your blood. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, cheap booze gives you a worse hangover. I've sort of, I believe it's true, and I just want to know the reason. I have extensive <laughs> anecdotal experience to back that exactly. up. Exactly. Um,
0: <laughs> uh, if we use the Mythbusters terms here, I'm going to say plausible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh it it would depend to some degree on on the cheap booze Uh, i think i think we all know what we mean when we say cheap booze it's not merely inexpensive but cheap in the sense of quality as well uh usually that indicates that uh the the there has not been as much care in the distillation there have been some of those um lighter or heavier chemicals than ethanol that are they making the cut
1: out of a, a more shall we say less generous cut (laughs) <laughs> or
0: uh, it, it, yeah probably they're probably the, getting more
1: of the heads in than should be in there
0: I I would wager that that's happening a lot so yeah. you're probably getting more acetone more yeah. more acetaldehyde that I mentioned earlier that that's that sort of unpleasant irritant carcinogenic chemical that's the intermediate product in your body's ethanol metabolism that's part of distillation too is you know that's that's part of the heads that's one of those chemicals that shows up in the, the early part of a distillation run you might get more of it uh I if you make your customers more if
1: they're doing that to save up to get a greater yield so they can sell it for less, so they're making the
0: cut much uh, wider, I guess you'd say. I would wager that that's absolutely happening, uh, especially, and that's very probably easier to get away with in some clear spirits. If you're drinking really, really bargain basement vodka or gin, um, yeah. there's a very good chance that they've been doing exactly that. Um, and uh, the other thing that I, I, I suppose if we're talking about heads, I ought to mention is methanol, because um, that'll also show up in the heads of a, of a distillation run, uh, and that one. You know, it is is definitely going to be unpleasant for you waking up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, ethanol's sort of rather more poisonous, uh, unpleasant cousin. Um so yeah, I, I think that if you're if you're drinking a, a very low quality, especially a clear spirit, probably a, a decent chance that they have made very generous cuts to get a higher yield and right. they're getting more of those. Questionably toxic heads in there right exactly
1: and that's where the uh bathtub gin making you blind thing comes from right
0: well yeah i mean you need a, a, a relatively high concentration of methanol compared to even the the, the lowest quality of available distilled spirits um yeah. but yeah if you uh, if you're drinking uh methanol in sufficient quantities um it's not the methanol itself that's going to make you go blind it's the way your body breaks it down mm. which i I found very interesting. I didn't know that before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that oxidation process because, <clears throat> excuse me, when your body uses uh, oxidation to break things down, it actually is using oxygen atoms, which is something that, you know, your body needs oxygen to continue to survive. Your optic nerves in particular need a lot of oxygen. So um, they're, they're getting oxygen deprived in the course of the breakdown of methanol into formic acid and then formaldehyde. There are ways that they can fix that if you get yourself to a hospital, but uh, yeah. uh. Hopefully it doesn't come to that. (laughs) Hopefully not.
1: Uh, So carbonated drinks, uh, what's the effect of that on on absorption rates? Uh,
0: Again, all else being equal, carbonated drinks will get you drunk faster than non-carbonated drinks will. So if you imagine a vodka soda versus a vodka water, and you're going to drink them both in the same length of time, the vodka soda will get you to a higher peak blood alcohol content.
1: Interesting. And the uh, explanation you gave made some sense of perhaps because there's a higher um, pressure inside your stomach, which mm-hmm. keeps it, which forces the alcohol, I guess, out into the blood quicker.
0: There, there are sort of two going theories on this. One is that the, uh, it increases the rate of absorption across the lining of your stomach, which would uh, definitely have the effect of getting you drunk faster, getting more alcohol into your blood. Uh, The other is that it increases the rate at which things move from your stomach into your small intestine, which would also work, um, because uh, the longer stuff stays in your stomach, the more it gets broken down. There is actually uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, the enzyme that metabolizes ethanol in your stomach, um, which there is not in your intestine, and stuff gets absorbed really, really rapidly in your intestines, whereas it's uh, not as much gets absorbed across the lining of your stomach. So we're not sure which of these mechanisms is the one, but either of them would make sense. Yeah. It could be well, both for all I know. Well, hopefully
1: people listening to this are using this information to drink more responsibly, not less, because it could go either way, I guess. <laughs> uh,
0: hopefully. Uh, that's, you know, I tell people, they, they ask me, uh, uh, can, you, can you tell me something that will teach me how to, get, how to stay sober longer, how to get drunk faster? I say, well, all of this information can be used either way. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, our listeners are very responsible drinkers.
0: I, I don't doubt it. <laughs> Brian, this is a pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for oh, talking. My pleasure is mine. Well. Thank you, Brian. All right, so once again, the book is Distilled Knowledge, The Science Behind Drinking's Greatest Myths, Legends, and Unanswered Questions. Thanks again, man. Yeah, thank you, Brian. If uh, people want to get in touch with you, how can they find you?
0: Uh, my website's HerzogCocktailSchool.com. That's H-E-R-Z-O-G, CocktailSchool.com. Uh, and you can reach me at Brian at that. And you can find us on Facebook as well. Very cool. It was great, man. Thank you. thank you. This is fun.
1: Yeah. Great conversation and interesting guy, Brian Heffling. Well, uh, remember uh, we're not going to do a podcast next week, but because I'll be traveling down to Mexico to the Patron Hacienda. But uh, please subscribe, and uh, so you'll get the new shows as soon as they become available. And you can, uh, if you want to find out how to do that, go to bartenderjourney.net/slash subscribe. And besides that, we have lots more great stuff coming up for you on the Bartender Journey. Hey, while I'm down in Mexico, I'm going to try to do some, uh, you know, do some postings. Uh, follow me on. Instagram at bartender journey or uh, bar, search for bartender journey on Facebook and like that page like it and so uh, yeah you can find Follow my adventures if you like, and then uh, we'll be talking about it on uh, probably on the in two weeks on the future on a future episode that'll be episode two hundred two. I'll try to uh, publish out our um, adventures from Mexico. That's it. I gotta get ready for a very busy few days at work, and then uh, split for the airport at like four a.m. on Monday. So uh, until we meet again, wishing you celebrations, learning, and good spirits.